<laughs> May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. <laughs> yes, for, uh, yeah, we are, we, we do record the homilies and, and podcast them out, so if, if you ever need to review or just want to hear my dulcet tones for whatever reason in the middle of the week, um, we do that, so... To the text today, one of the earliest heresies we had in the church history was something we call Marcionism. Um, Some people pronounce it Martianism, but that sounds a little too uh, science fiction for me. Marcion was a second century teacher who's best known for the idea that the God of the Old Testament was an inferior wicked God and that the God of the New Testament, the Father of Jesus, is a different God who is superior, and he's a good God. As such, Marcion um, believed that the Old Testament was inappropriate for Christians to read. And so he chopped it out of, the, out, of, out of the Bible that he and his followers read. And in fact, Marcion chopped a whole bunch of other stuff out of the Bible, too, a bunch of the stuff from the New Testament, because he wanted to cut out anything that alluded to the Old Testament or seemed to sympathize a little too closely with Old Testament ideas. Marcion considered himself to be the only true follower of St. Paul. Well, while few Christians today would explicitly agree with Marcion, it's all too easy to end up in a similar place functionally. How many of us are almost completely unfamiliar with the Old Testament outside of the major Sunday school Bible stories? How many Christians think that the God of the Old Testament was angry and vengeful and we assume that he changed his mind and had a change of heart when Jesus came? You may even recall um, a controversy last year in which megachurch pastor Andy Stanley called for Christians to, quote, unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. As I said, uh, Marcion considered himself the only true follower of St. Paul and St. Paul, the only true apostle. But as we saw in our epistle today, St. Paul had a very different idea than all than Marcion and Andy Stanley and frankly, many Christians today when it comes to the Old Testament. St. Paul tells us that the Old Testament was written for our edification as New Testament saints. And you could even make a case that due to the hardness of the people's hearts in the Old Testament, the vast majority of the people at the time to whom Moses was speaking, to whom the prophets were speaking, to whom those things were written, that due to the hardness of their hearts, edification for those who would come later, who would have hearts of flesh, hearts softened by the Holy Spirit because the Messiah, the promised Messiah had come, that those people in the future were the primary reason the Old Testament was written. In other words, you and I are not just secondary audience for the Old Testament, but on some level, we are actually the primary audience for the Old Testament. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, our epistle passage, 1 Corinthians 10, and you can find this in your prayer book on page 201. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, in your prayer book on page 201. We begin. 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So St. Paul begins by reminding us who our spiritual forefathers were. In the Exodus story, the, the people were united as God's people, baptized into Moses and supernaturally sustained. The cloud St. Paul speaks of refers to the symbolic presence of God that led them as a cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night. They all went through the Red Sea during the Exodus, and that's the event in which God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. God's presence and redemption were central to their identity as God's people. Remember how often in the Old Testament God would address them saying, I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is the foundational aspect of the Mosaic Covenant, of the law of Moses. Because God had rescued the Israelites, they were supposed to be his people, and he was to be their God. But not only did he rescue them, he fed them during their time in the desert. Most every morning, God provided manna for them to eat. And in Psalm 78, the manna is called the grain from heaven and the bread of angels. It was both spiritual and physical food. Similarly, the Old Testament tells that God supernaturally provided water from a rock. Long-standing Jewish tradition by St. Paul's day had said that it was the same rock each time that, that, that the Lord fed them, that the rock actually would follow them, follow the Hebrews in the desert throughout their journeys. St. Paul goes a step further, and he tells us that the rock was Christ himself in a pre-incarnation manifestation. <laughs> We don't have time to go into all this today, but the Old Testament is full of what we call theophanies, uh, times when God appeared to the patriarchs and the prophets or other folk in some sort of physical manner. Many theologians agree that, these, that when he did this, these theophanies, that, that these were probably God the Son, as, because we know that the second person of the Holy Trinity, God the Son, is the one who becomes incarnate in Jesus. And therefore, it stands to reason that if we're going to have some sort of physical manifestation of God, some sort of um, kind of mini-incarnation, that it would be God the Son. Well, two of my favorite historic theologians, uh, the church father, St. John Chrysostom, so the greatest preacher of the ancient Eastern church, um, his name means the golden mouthed because he was the greatest preacher, uh, St. John Chrysostom, and then the reformer, John Calvin, they both note that what we read in, um, in these Exodus stories and in 1 Corinthians 10, that this is clearly sacramental language. The exodus is a type of our baptism. What that, what, what was, and so we say, okay, what was the means by which God rescued the Israelites from Pharaoh? Well, it was through the waters of the Red Sea. What is the means by which God rescues us from the world, the flesh, and the devil? It's through the waters of baptism. 
The Exodus was the sign of Israel's redemption, and the people could always point back to the Exodus event whenever they doubted their identity. Because what what is their identity? Those whose God brought them out of the land of Egypt. And and for, for us, baptism is that sign of our redemption, and we Christians can point back to our baptism whenever we doubt our identity in Christ. Who are you? You are the ones who are baptized into Christ. In similar way, as God sustained and strengthened the Israelites in the desert wanderings with supernatural manna and supernatural water from that rock, he spiritually sustains and strengthens us with the body and blood of Christ in Holy Communion. In the Old Testament, they were fed with the bread of angels. In the New Testament, we are fed from the very table of the Lord. And as rightly as encouraging as all that is, St. Paul also gives in our epistle some stern warnings. So let's look at verse 5. Pick up at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So in these verses, St. Paul refers to several of the worst tragedies of the Exodus story. Verse 7 refers to the incident with the golden calf in Exodus 32. You remember that story. Verse 8 refers to the worship of Baal Peor through through ritual prostitution in Exodus 32. Verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 9 refers to Numbers 21 when the people's impatience with God led them to claim that that God didn't properly provide for them and that the manna was worthless food. This is the bread of angels. They said this is worthless food. Verse 10 refers to the people's rebellion right when they were about to enter the promised land, when they listened to and believed the ten fearful spies instead of Caleb and Joshua. And this resulted in 40 years of wandering throughout the desert, rather than just a few weeks' journey. Each of these incidents is ultimately about idolatry, having faith in, and therefore worshiping, something other than God. Despite having first-hand experience of God's miraculous salvation from slavery, the Israelites were willing to worship other gods and even consider turning back to Egypt, consider turning back to slavery. Despite having firsthand experience with God's loving care and provision for his people, they constantly doubted him and complained against him, trusting worthless idols instead of the living God. So because of this, that entire generation the generation that saw the first Passover with their own eyes, they all perished in the desert. The ones who should have known God the best never even made it to the promised land. Let's pick up in verse 11 where St. Paul brings it home. He writes, Now these things happened to them as an example, 
but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So St. Paul wants us to learn from our spiritual forefathers. Israel's story is our story. The Israelites constantly fell into idolatry, and that is a sin that's always lurking. Calvin famously said that the heart is an idol factory. Every sin is ultimately a violation of the first commandment, that first commandment that says, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have none other gods but me. Or to rephrase this as a positive commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy mind. To sin is to fail to love God. To sin is to bow down to other gods. I don't know about you, but I find this to be very sobering. Despite being baptized into Christ's death and resurrection 40 years ago, I don't like the fact that I can say anything happened 40 years ago, but that's all right. (laughs) Despite being baptized into Christ's death and resurrection 40 years ago, despite partaking of the bread of heaven and cup of salvation every Lord's day, I, nevertheless, have an idolatrous heart. When I see the examples of the Israelites, it can be absolutely terrifying. I can't help but pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The beauty of that prayer is that God never says no to it. God loves repentance. He loves his prodigal children. Back in Numbers 25, when the Israelites' grumbling and blasphemy against his gifts led to a plague of fiery serpents, God had Moses fashion a bronze snake, a bronze serpent, and all who looked up to it would be saved. In John 3.14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Even for prodigals like you and like me, idol-prone as we are, God provides a solution. His very Son, lifted up on the cross, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. When we look at the Old Testament types, remember that the anti-type is always superior to the type. So that means if if the Old Testament is pointing to something, The thing that it points to is going to be bigger and better than that which was doing the pointing, right? So Jesus is a greater teacher, leader, and prophet than Moses, and Moses was the greatest teacher, leader, and prophet of the Old Testament. The sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist are greater signs of salvation and sustenance than the Exodus and the manna were, as miraculous as those things were. The miracles we witness in this parish through the sacraments are even greater. We have, in the New Testament, 
we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit in a way that the Israelites could never imagine. That's the reason why we can say that, this, that these things in the Old Testament were written for us, because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they did not. We have the Holy Spirit speaking to us through those types, through those examples, through those stories, through the prophets. For them, their hard hearts kept it from going in. But the Holy Spirit has softened our hearts. So as we look to Christ crucified, as we walk in his ways, as we partake in the, in the sacraments and soak in his word, God does indeed shape us little by little into the likeness of his son. If you are united to Christ by faith and baptism, then sin, the world, and the, and the flesh, and the devil are no more your master than Pharaoh was to those Israelites after they crossed the Red Sea. The Christian life is one of repentance, constantly turning back to the Lord Jesus. Like the Israelites, we may spend a bit more time in the desert than we like. But remember that our Lord Jesus went into the desert too. And he is with you in your desert. He's a better Moses with a better baptism, better spiritual food, and a better exodus that leads us step by step, little by little, to a true and better promised land where there will be no more sin, sorrow, or death. And we look forward to these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.